Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages Podcast. Today's episode, Schism. So against my better judgment, this episode is mostly about religion. You remember when I was talking about Boethius and I mentioned the Acacian Schism? And I said it was just too obscure to get into? Well, guess what? The Acacian Schism was a conflict between the Pope in Rome and the Patriarch in Constantinople, which led to each of them excommunicating the other. It grew out of controversies about the nature of Christ, which is the obscure part, and ultimately had consequences for the relationship between the Emperor and the King of the Ostrogoths. So I've set myself a few challenges in this episode. First, we haven't really been into the relationship between Theodoric and Constantinople in any depth, other than to say it was complicated. So we need to catch up on that, since knowing how it changed will require knowing where it started. Second, the relationship between the Bishop of Rome, aka the Pope, and the Emperor will also need to be talked about. And third, the actual meat of the controversy that led the schism, led to the schism, as well as how that schism played out. I am not going to lie to you, this episode is deep in the weeds, with a lot of names and back and forth. We're going to go through, by my count, four different popes and three emperors in the process. So, strap in. Or don't, just go back and re-listen to On War or Beyond the River. Those are a couple of my favorites. I'm stalling. Stop. Okay. The question of Theodoric's exact relationship with the East is a subject for continuous debate among scholars. The problem, as usual, is the paucity of detail in the sources and the differing agendas of the sources. The relationship also shifted over time as emperors succeeded each other and their policies changed, often in, as much in response to internal politics as external events. So what was true last year didn't necessarily pertain to this year, which... Come to think of it, I guess it's just like politics in any period, isn't it? From the beginning, it was understood that Theodoric reigned over the Ostrogoths as their king, but over the Romans as a viceroy of the emperor. In maintaining this separation of roles, he found a winning formula for stability and internal harmony. In practice, the emperor was too far away to exercise direct control over Italian affairs, and he was often distracted by the business of, you know, running a still massive and complicated and wealthy empire. If we could know the actual terms of the agreement between Zeno and Theodoric, which had sent the latter to Italy in the first place, it probably would be of great help in setting up the debate. In settling the debate. Or maybe it wouldn't. It was a treaty that had been aimed at solving a specific problem, the inability of the two to get along, and which was then vague enough about the future that both could feel good about things, as long as they didn't think too far ahead. Maybe when Theodore got to Italy, the law of unintended consequences kicked in for Zeno, and the emperor found he regretted his decision. We can't know for sure. What we can know for sure is that whatever the original fudge, once his foot was in the Italian door, Theodoric started renegotiating with a vengeance. A first embassy went to Zeno in 491, but didn't achieve very much, except for recognition and reward for the senators that carried the messages. That same year, Zeno died, and Theodoric had to adjust his approach to the new man in the hot seat, whose name was Anastasius. Anastasius was in his 60s when he took the throne. 
He was still tall, strong, and popular, and had spent his life in imperial service mostly on the financial side. When Zeno died, his widow, Ariadne, was the only remaining source of imperial legitimacy left, but sole rule of an empress was out of the question. The mob of Constantinople made their feelings clear on the matter of succession, reportedly shouting, Give us a Roman emperor, and give us a Christian! So Zeno's Isaurian heritage meant that he had never really been accepted. And he had also gotten himself into religious trouble, which we'll get into later. So Ariadne chose Anastasius, married him, and had him crowned. He was exactly what the crowd had wanted. Impeccably Roman in breeding, and impeccably orthodox in religion. Also rigid and thrifty to the point of miserliness. Theodoric's first episode... To Theodoric's first embassy to the new emperor arrived almost immediately, in 492, but again, got nowhere. It wasn't until 497 or 498 that progress was finally made, and Anastasius agreed to return the, quote, ornaments of the palace, as the relevant letter in the Verrier puts it, and accept whatever terms Theodoric had put forward. From then on, Theodoric half-inched the powers and perks of an emperor of the West, while never actually taking the title, as we've been over. He kept on gathering new territories, including some traditionally in the preserve of the East. And if Anastasius made diplomatic attempts to rein them in, they were apparently paid lip service and then consigned to the round file. Anastasius was gradually going to come to see Theodoric as a rival rather than a junior partner. Whatever Theodoric's claims to be the defender of Romanitas, the rules of realpolitik still applied. It isn't too surprising that Anastasius would seek to balance Theodoric's growing power, and he did, making friendly overtures to Gundabad the Burgundian, mobilizing his Bulgar mercenaries, and the agreement with Clovis to distract Theodoric with sea raids while the Frank made his play against the Visigoths. Anastasius couldn't have known how badly that play would backfire in the end. If all that wasn't enough, tensions within the church made their own complex contribution to the relationship. And with that slightly ham-fisted segue, we can move into the second challenge and talk about the state of the church under the new rulers of the West. When Odoacer had seized control of Italy in 476, there must have been considerable trepidation on the part of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. After all, Odoacer was an Arian, and so were most of his men, which put the military establishment in the hands of heretics. Truth be told, though, this probably wasn't that much different from the status quo ante, since the barbarization of the Roman army meant that a significant portion of its manpower probably had been Arian for some generations. But there had always been orthodoxy at the top of the pyramid. I need to pause a second and note that I have been and probably will continue to be sloppy and imprecise about my nomenclature here. When I talk about the dominant Christian sect, which constituted the official religion of the empire, I can call it the Catholic Church, Orthodox Christianity, sometimes Nicene Christianity, all interchangeably. There are arguments for and against using all of these names at this time in history, but since I'm not a real historian, I could ignore those arguments and go for clarity and, dare I say, style over pre precision a little bit. Basically, whenever I use those words, Catholic, Orthodox, Nicene, I mean the same thing. The branch of Christianity that became the monolithic religious establishment across all of Western and Central Europe in later centuries. Any variation from that, I'll call by its specific name. Okay? Have I done this speech before? Well, if I have, it bears repeating. Anyway, both Odoacer and Theodoric enjoyed pretty harmonious relations with the Catholic Church, especially Theodoric. 
Some churches were commandeered and converted for Aryan use, and some new ones were built to purpose, but there's not much sign in the Chronicles of any kind of persecution or Catholics or any other faith. The Bishop of Rome had acquired immense status when Constantine legitimized Christianity, and that status grew along with the meteoric growth of the faith in the following two centuries. With the withdrawal of the emperor to Ravenna, the Pope became the most influential man in the city of Rome, a position that was unchanged when Odoacer took command of the, of the country in 476. He and Pope Simplicius seemed to have gotten along just fine, and when Simplicius died in 484, Odoacer did nothing to interfere in the election of his successor. When Theodoric came along, as we have seen, he put considerable effort into keeping the old civilian power structures in place alongside his militarized Goths, and in keeping the church on side was a key part of the strategy. So he plied the Pope with gifts and flattery, as well as improvement projects for the city of Rome. The Pope responded in kind, making very little fuss about Theodoric's Arianism. A strict separation between Arian and Catholic was maintained, and religious tolerance was the official position of the state, extending even to the Jewish communities of the peninsula. Famously, a letter from the Verrier, Book 2, Number 27, if you're interested, noted that we cannot order a religion, as no one can be forced to believe against his will. That does not mean that there was no religious prejudice in the Ostrogothic kingdom by any stretch of the imagination, and the status of Jews and other minority faiths could easily be the subject of its own episode. But Theodoric was generally not a fan of persecution. Theodoric recognized the political power of the church and courted it. If he could win the approval and support of the bishops of Italy, it could be a sturdy pillar of his legitimacy. As Theodoric's power grew and his influence spread, this became a two-way street, and the church was happy to provide its support in return for protection from the Ostrogoths. The church, of course, is given a face and a name in the person of the Pope, the bishop and patriarch of Rome. Patriarch denotes the lead bishop of a particular region. In our period, there were four, in Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, and Antioch. The primacy of Rome among these was never seriously questioned by the other patriarchs. Rome had the benefit of the apostolic line of St. Peter, the first bishop of Rome who had ordained the line of bishops thereafter. To him, the scripture said, had been given the keys to the kingdom of God, and that was taken to mean that he was given special authority. The Roman pontiff's position was further strengthened by the philosophical relationship between the empire and the church. The thinking began with the entirely accurate assessment that the spread of Christianity had been facilitated by Roman dominance of the Western world. The political hegemony, efficient communication, and trade infrastructure of the empire made proselytizing easy, and the disorganized and slightly bloodless old civil religion cried out for an alternative, and Christianity was there to fill the breach. Extrapolating from that, it was clear to the Church Fathers that the Roman Empire had been successful so that it could spread Christianity. The victories of the Caesars in this equation had been granted by God so that conditions would be right for the salvation of the world. That place in the divine plan gave the city at the heart of the empire an important prestige point, and the city's bishop shared in that prestige. Everyone agreed on this. In 381, a church council definitively placed Constantinople second in the hierarchy. And yet, for some reason, popes were incredibly touchy about this. They saw threats to their position everywhere. It's possible that the Roman pontiff's insecurity stemmed from the city of Rome's loss of primacy, 
first with the Emperor's move to Ravenna, and then the successive humiliation of two sacks, and finally with the dissolution of the Western Empire entirely. But the Empire was baked into the structure of the Church. Its practices of documentation, bureaucratic structure, even the map of its diocese were all mirrors of the Imperial example. As the Empire crumbled away, this organizational residue would be a key to the Church's success in the coming centuries. But the Church felt the loss of its protector and institutional patron deeply. As part of its position of primacy, the Roman diocese saw itself as the defender of orthodoxy. There was a clear procedure for determining dogma. A question would arise, come to the attention of the emperor. He would call a council of bishops, an ecumenical council, to discuss the matter. The council would debate the issue, arrive at a conclusion, which would or would not be signed off by the emperor, and become orthodoxy. The Roman see would then push for adherence to the newly concluded dogma against all comers. The Pope wasn't a disinterested party in these councils, of course. He sent his own representatives and positions to them, and could and did object to specific clauses or canons of the resulting documents. Key to the relationship was the understanding that the Emperor, while head of the Church and God's viceroy on earth, did not decree matters of doctrine. He could initiate councils, mediate them, weigh in, but decisions pertaining to the belief of the whole church must be made in consultation with the whole church. In principle, as in all of human endeavors, popes were perfectly capable of standing on principle when it was other people violating them, and kick against them when it was in conflict with their interests. The popes had it relatively easy in the maintaining orthodoxy department on their patch. Once things started to go pear-shaped in the West, there wasn't much time for folks to sit around and think of new ways to conceptualize the nature of Christ. While the churches in Gaul and Spain could be stroppy and even downright hostile to papal authority, they weren't out there fomenting heresy. The East, by comparison, was a mess and a half. It was so much of a mess, in fact, that when Theodoric took the throne, as far as Rome was concerned, the whole Eastern Church was in a state of schism. And here we are, at the Acacian Schism. Better take cover, everybody. Theology incoming. Hail Mary, Mother of God, is a simple enough and well-known phrase and prayer. In Greek, Mother of God is Theotokos. While discussing the refinement of church liturgy in the 430s, the Patriarch of Constantinople, named Nestorius, objected to the use of the title Theotokos for Mary, on the grounds that Mary could only have been mother to the human part of Jesus, not the divine. Have you ever said something that you thought was brilliant in a meeting, or at the dinner table, and everything goes silent and just stares at you, and waits for someone else to respond to the nonsense that just came out of your mouth? The response in this case came from Cyril, the patriarch in Alexandria. Much like John Chrysostom back in the days of Ilia Pulcheria, Cyril strikes me as one of those reverend church fathers who I would prefer never to have been in a room with. He had opinions, and he needed you to know about them, and he needed you to act on them, up to and including whipping up mobs to murder women you disapproved of, allegedly. Anyway, that's another story. Cyril accused Nestorius of heresy. He preferred an understanding of the nature of Jesus called 
hypostasis, of the divine and the human combined and inseparable in the person of Jesus, which would indeed then make Mary the mother of God. They went back and forth, back and forth. Nestorius had his supporters, Cyril had his, until eventually Cyril gained the upper hand and the Council of Ephesus deposed Nestorius in 431. Nestorius wasn't just going to retire and shut up, though, and kept loudly defending his position. He was ultimately excommunicated in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon. His supporters migrated east into the Persian Empire, set up the Church of the East, and excommunicated everybody else back home. The Bishop of Rome wasn't silent in all of this. The Pope at the time was Leo I. He was just a few years away from his famous meeting with Attila and then the Vandal Sack of Rome. He didn't attend Chalcedon in person, but did send a statement of his position, a major document called the Tome of Leo. It ultimately shaped the final outcome of the council, which was a feather in the papacy's cap, and helpfully settled the matter, declaring that Jesus was both man and God constructed into natures. End of story. It didn't settle anything, of course. It was enough to push out the hardest of hardliners, but fuzziness remained for Nestorian supporters to find relief in, and since this whole thing wasn't really necessarily about the issue, but it was partly a battle for status between Constantinople and Alexandria, the debate went right on going, now focused on the results of Chalcedon and the exact definition of the word nature. Along the way, the lines were eventually drawn between the supporters of the council and a group called the Monophysites, who believed, and I am oversimplifying massively, that the human had been absorbed into the divine in the person of Jesus, and so rejected the two natures statement, Christ was entirely divine. This was obviously the extreme opposite of Nestorius's belief, and equally irreconcilable to the ultimate result of the Council of Chalcedon. The debate went on in the background for, and I am not kidding, 30 damn years, before Zeno finally got sick of the whole thing and took a shot at getting everybody to shut up. He prevailed on his patriarch in Constantinople, Acacius, to issue a compromise statement called the Henoticon, which is Greek for Act of Union. Being a compromise statement, the Henoticon was successful in pissing everybody off. Monophysites were mad that it held up the condemnation of their position, Nestorians were mad because it also held up the condemnation of their hero, and everyone was ticked that the emperor had unilaterally attempted to dictate doctrine. He wasn't supposed to do that. In Rome, Pope Felix III was just as hacked off as everyone else. More so, actually, since the Henoticon flew in the face of Leo's earlier brilliant, shining, incorruptible statement that had turned the Chalcedonian argument. Matters were made worse when John Talea, the Patriarch of Alexandria, arrived in Rome as a fugitive, telling stories of Monophysites persecuting Orthodox Christians in Egypt, encouraged by what they saw as tacit approval for their position in Constantinople. Felix was new in his job and didn't want to rock the boat too much right away. He sent a perfectly cordial letter to Zeno, announcing his election and assuring the Emperor of his loyalty. When silence followed, a second message was sent. This one may be less concerned about rocking the boat. It called on Zeno and Acacius to respect and maintain the decision of Chalcedon, along with a summons to Acacius to come to Rome and answer the charges made by John Talea. 
Now, when I say messenger, it conjures up an image of a dusty rider galloping across the, far, the Balkans. Let that image go. This was an embassy from one prince of the church to another. Only the best would do. It was headed by the bishops of Truentum and of Cume, with their full entourages in tow. Hard to travel under the radar in these conditions. Word of their mission must have preceded them. When they arrived at Abydos, they were arrested, bullied, threatened, and cajoled into taking communion with Acacius and the Monophysite Patriarch of Alexandria, who had started the trouble with John, and that pretty much completely undercut the whole point of their mission. Well, maybe they could get away with it. I mean, how would Felix even know? How he would know was through the rather sinisterly named Sleepless Monks of Constantinople, the Akoimete, a community, I'm positive I'm mispronouncing that, a community of ultra-Orthodox hardliners who acted as the Pope's eyes and ears in the imperial capital. They sent word to Felix of his bishop's transgressions right away, and when the bishops got back, they were put on trial before a synod of their peers and excommunicated and deposed. That same synod excommunicated Acacius, and we are off and running. The sleepless monks had a fairly wicked sense of humor, I'll grant them that. When they received the Pope's excommunication of Acacius, they delivered it by sneaking up on the patriarch as he was celebrating Mass and pinning it to the back of his robe. It's the ecclesiastical equivalent of a kick-me sign. Acacius didn't find it funny for some reason, and he excommunicated the Pope right on back. So right from the start, it's clear that this isn't really about the theological argument, which probably could have, and would, simmer in the background for decades. This is a question of personalities. By suborning the Western bishops, Acacius had made the thing personal. He had deliberately sought to humiliate the Pope, and that couldn't stand. Granted, Felix had been pretty high and mighty. Just a few months into the job, and he's issuing summons to other patriarchs to come and hear his judgment? There was also the issue of the dispute between John Talea and the Monophysite replacement, Peter Mogus. The other patriarchs acknowledged that the Pope had precedence, but it was in a he-can-have-the-good-chair-on-movie-night kind of way. It didn't automatically make him sole arbiter of disputes between them. I mean, who does this guy think he is? So there were plenty of issues at the root of the Acacian Schism, and theology was way down on the list. No one was happy with the separation, including the Emperor. Alienation from the senior prelate of all Christendom is embarrassing, regardless of the circumstances. A continuous stream of letters made their way up and down the Via Ignatia, trying to resolve the conflict, but with no success. It was impossible for Felix to reach any kind of agreement with Acacius. He had sought to humiliate the papacy and could not be forgiven for it. But when Acacius died in 489, there seemed like there might be room for accommodation. The new patriarch, named Fravita, sent a letter to Felix indicating his orthodox inclinations, and Felix responded with joy and praise for him and Zeno. All the difficulties which have previously arisen, I believe, have been removed by this appointment, he said. All Felix needed from them to close the rift was official condemnation of Acacius and Peter Mogus, and who, who had also died. Well, dang, that wasn't going to happen. So Felix ordered the monks of Constantinople not to communicate with the bishop of the city and stressed that condemnation of the two previous patriarchs was absolutely prerequisite for resolving the schism. No headway at all had been made by the time Zeno died in 491. I would like to point out that we are now four years into this argument. 
Brief hopes were dashed when it turned out that Anastasius was, if anything, even less flexible than his predecessor. And a whole new generation inherited the problem in 492 when Felix died. He was succeeded, after a barely contested election, by his secretary, Gelasius I. It was Gelasius who would establish a working relationship with Theodoric once the war with Odoacer was resolved, and is one of the most important early medieval popes in spite of a very short tenure. So we'll probably be hearing more from him as we go along. He was deeply conservative, orthodox, and personally austere. I found a line from historian Geoffrey Richards that Gelasius's ideological innovations were, quote, in the main, merely manifestations of spleen, end quote, which should give you some idea of the personality we're dealing with here. Much less compromising than his predecessor, and it's not like Felix was a pushover. Okay, I hear you thinking, I can do that, it's my superpower, that this is all very interesting, but what does any of it have to do with Theodoric and his problems with Anastasius? Good question, and I have to admit, don't have a super clear answer, except to say that the parties at the time clearly saw the schism and the legitimacy of rule in Italy as connected. After the bishop's debacle, no more ecumenical embassies were sent to Constantinople, so the emissaries that negotiated on behalf of Theodoric were also working on their religious issues, which involved then the nobility into the problem. And the first two of those embassies got no further on their religious stuff than they did on the political ones. The third embassy, sent after Gelasius died in 497, was successful in winning those imperial ornaments and recognition. But, quid pro quo Clarice, Anastasius's condition was that Theodoric would accept the Henoticon. So that was going to be another problem. Gelasius's successor, annoyingly also named Anastasius, was more amenable to compromise, but the conflict had taken on a life of its own now. The bishops of the West rejected the Henoticon absolutely, which made things awkward for Theodoric, since now it seemed that he had accepted the emperor's recognition under false pretenses. Evidence of the new pope's reasonableness became its own problem, as the hardline bishops objected to his peace overtures, especially reconciliation with the bishop of Thessalonica. But the problem was quickly out of Pope Anastasius's hand, since he died in 498, to the vicious satisfaction of his enemies. The entry in the Liber Pontificalis, the Book of Popes, which was clearly not written by a fan, puts it this way, quote, Without consulting the priests or bishop of the whole Catholic Church, he had shared communion with Thessalonica, because he wished secretly to restore Acacius, and could not. Then he was struck dead by divine will. So there. The authority of the Pope was shaky, with the hardliners withdrawn from communion with their own patriarch, so it was the perfect time for an election. Actually, two elections, separate ones, held in different places by different groups of clergy. This will work out well. Faction one elected a deacon called Symmachus, the other a priest called Laurentius. Both the clergy and lay nobility were divided about the election, which made compromise pretty much impossible, and the parties appealed to the king for arbitration. Which, on one level, is perfectly normal. That's what kings do, especially in the Gothic tradition. They mediate disputes between their mighty subjects. On another level, it was extraordinary. Here is an Arian barbarian choosing the Roman Catholic Pope. Theodoric found in favor of Symmachus on the basis that he had been ordained first. 
The Laurentians, of course, furiously asserted that Symmachus had won thanks to lavish bribery of officials, but that was probably a pot and kettle situation. Money most likely flowed into the court from both parties. It was the confirmation of this settlement that prompted Theodoric's triumphant entry into Rome in 500. But settled it was not. The enemies of Symmachus set about plotting to depose him. I am not going to get into the ins and outs of the attempts, since they are both tiresome and deeply petty-seeming. But just as an example, one of the charges against him was that Symmachus had celebrated Easter on the wrong date. Three synods were called about the matter, each of them ultimately vindicating Symmachus, but each one of them then was declared illegitimate by their opponents, for one reason or another. And lest you think that all of this is just esoteric drama happening in the corridors of power and unnoticed by the public, consider this passage from the Liber Pontificalis, describing, in this case, the retainers, clients, and slaves of Laurentius's supporters. Quote, in their hatred, they visited slaughter and murder on the clergy. Those who rightly held communion with the blessed Symmachus were openly put to the sword when found within the city of Rome. Consecrated women and virgins were expelled from their convents and houses, stripped and beaten. Every day they waged war against the church in the midst of the city, so that it was unsafe for any of the clergy to walk abroad in the city by day or night. Quote. Now, if that passage is even a little bit true, the situation was clearly dire. We need to read it with some caution, though, especially the part about nuns. If you're running a smear campaign in medieval days and you don't accuse your target of defiling nuns and virgins, you really aren't even trying. Theodoric tried to stay above the whole thing as long as he could, in spite of pretty much continuous badgering by both sides to reinforce his decisions. There is a sense that Theodoric wasn't entirely comfortable at this stage with such a direct role in a church that wasn't even his, but ultimately something had to be done to stop the violence. He ordered the Laurentians to hand over control of all of their churches to Symmachus, on pain of royal displeasure, and issued a decree urging unity. Many submitted and came over to Symmachus, but Laurentius himself took himself off to an estate and fasted so rigorously that he died shortly thereafter. I hate to trivialize that by calling it a tantrum, but, you know. There were still plenty who bitterly resented Symmachus and remained defiant, and writings from their side suggest that the Pope reveled in his victory and immediately started selling off offices to enrich himself. But who knows? He certainly did make sure that all the important posts went to men who were loyal to him, and support was assured. Now, if your brain isn't slowly dripping out of your ears, you may be wondering what happened to the whole issue with the East, with Acacius and all that stuff. The conflict in Rome had been triggered by the conflict over the handling of the Eastern question, with Symmachus firmly in the anti-Acacius camp, and Laurentius probably supported by the emperor. But events had rather overtaken them. Symmachus made his position clear in a letter to Eastern Orthodox bishops, who had written to him for guidance. They were being threatened with persecution for refusing to deal with Acacius' successors. And Symmachus told them that they should stand firm and be prepared for martyrdom. I imagine that wasn't the answer they'd been looking for. One would hope that the death of Symmachus in 514 would produce another opportunity for reconciliation. He had nominated as his successor one Hormizdus, who was duly elected. Hormizdus was just as orthodox as his successor, but of a much less strident frame of mind. Emperor Anastasius wrote to him, hopeful that the division could at last be healed. And Anastasius now needed a win, but his own personal qualities were against him. 
Opposition to the Hinata Khan had grown throughout his reign, and in response, he dug in his heels. It went so far as open rebellion in the Orthodox Balkans, which initially was successful against the forces the emperor sent in opposition. Pope Hormizdus thus found himself with the initiative. He was surrounded by a supportive, hard-lying clergy, and when a letter arrived inviting the Pope to a new council to resolve the schism, there was cautious optimism. Hormizdus consulted with his bishops and was careful to seek and receive permission from Theodoric before agreeing to send an embassy with his proposals. The proposals hadn't changed, though. If anything, they were even harsher, as Hormizdus sought to exploit his position of strength. It still included the condemnation of Acacius, the reconfirmation of Chalcedon, and the extradition to Rome of six prominent bishops considered heretics by the Pope. None of it was acceptable. As far as Anastasius was concerned, he had never done anything or said anything against Chalcedon. Two of the heretics in question had already been condemned and were dead anyway, and further condemnation of the others, or of Acacius, would lead to bloodshed, which the emperor wouldn't countenance. Word of Anastasius's rejection led to renewed rebellion in the Balkans, but this time the emperor's military intervention was successful. Now feeling himself in a position of strength, Anastasius tried to get the Roman Senate on his side and put pressure on Theodoric. But Symmachus's death had healed the divisions in the Senate, and they were united behind their pope. Agents of Hormizdus, allegedly in Constantinople to negotiate, instead were found to be drumming up support among the increasingly frustrated Orthodox clergy. And when efforts to bribe them failed, Anastasius wrote to the pope in a bit of a snit. Quote, from henceforth we will suppress in silence our requests, thinking it absurd to show the courtesy of prayers to those who obstinately refuse even to be entreated. We can endure being insulted and thwarted, but we cannot endure being commanded. End quote. Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? But Annie was not okay. Emperor Anastasius died at the age of 88, and in so doing proved that he had been the last blockage to reconciliation. He was succeeded by the commander of the imperial bodyguard, Justin, an Illyrian peasant made good. He, as well as his leading advisors, were firmly orthodox, and invited Hermisdas to send yet another new delegation for discussions. Once again, the cautious Hermisdas sought approval and advice from bishops and king, but this time the outcome was not in doubt. In 519, the envoys were met outside Constantinople by Justin's nephew and second-in-command, some guy named Justinian. They were escorted to the city amid cheers and celebration. Hormizda's conditions for reunion were accepted by Justin in full. They declared Acacius, his four successors as patriarch, and even Zeno and Anastasius had all been heretics. Those last two hadn't even been requested by the Pope, and he was probably surprised when he heard about it. It never seems to have come up again and didn't do any damage to Justin's credibility as emperor, so it was just thrown in there as a bonus, I guess, with no real attention paid, kind of like the mint leaf on top of a dessert. The whole thing was an unalloyed triumph for the Pope. It wasn't long before things began to sour again, and it became clear that Rome had not actually gained any additional power or precedence over the Sea of Constantinople, but that really hadn't been the point. Removal of the offensive Acacius from the reverence of the Eastern Church, and reaffirmation of the Council of Chalcedon, and the rejection of both Nestorianism and Monophysitism were the keys, and all of that had been achieved. 
it allowed for a new closeness between the clergy and nobility of Rome and Constantinople, who of course shared the common heritage of Romanitas and Christianitas. Theodoric, for his part, seems to have been annoyed by the bickering, and happy to remove this constant undercurrent of strife from the body politic. But in the long run, the presence of the schism had probably been good for his own security on the throne of Ravenna. Reconciliation of East and West would give birth to a new destabilizing element in his court, the same destabilization that would lead to the execution of Boethius a few years later. It exposed the real problem that Theodoric faced when dealing with the East, the essentially split loyalty of his aristocracy. No matter how much he pushed his own Romanizing agenda, no matter how much he insisted on the trappings of a Roman ruler, for many he just couldn't compete with the actual emperor in Constantinople. Once the religious difference was resolved, that pull toward the East for some became even stronger. The last years of Theodoric's reign were increasingly unsettled, and it seems to have rattled him. His carefully constructed diplomatic edifice began to crumble. He suffered personal loss, and his ability to defend his Aryan brethren began to slip. It may have been that the great king, so assured and respected, started to go off the rails himself a little bit toward the end. We'll see whether that was so or not next time, as we bring down the curtain on Theodoric the Great. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. I was slightly surprised when I realized that I have now spent seven episodes on this one man and his rule. Hopefully it's been worthwhile to you. We'll take a break after the next episode for a thematic episode, probably not about the papacy, since I think there's been plenty of that today, but something fun. Then on to the next larger-than-life character of the drama, the mighty and mighty intimidating Clovis, King of the Franks. Thank you to all of you who have rated or reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This time I have to thank A.V. Jeff, Ali the Traveler, and the Confessions of St. Augustine, along with Florida Film Guy, who, to my shame, I forgot to thank at the end of last episode. There have been many, many more of you listening than ever before, and those reviews and ratings are a great motivator to keep on going. Take a look at the website, darkagespod.com. I post the transcript of the episode there, along with sources, pictures, and links to interesting extras. Sometimes it's a day or two after the episode drops before the webpage comes up, so just be patient. I'm still working on my Who's Who page for the show to provide some guidance with all of the names, and I will let you know when it's done, and it will be on the website as well. Thank you all again for listening. Until next time, take care.